Well, today we begin a new series from Ephesians entitled God's New People. And this letter highlights in extensive fashion the glory of God through his brilliant creation of the church. Yeah, I said that right. His brilliant creation of the church. Ephesians is this succinct summary of God revealed in Christ and the gospel that creates a new community. We find all kinds of teaching about the church in the New Testament, especially the local church. But I would say nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the New Testament, do we find the depth and the breadth of teaching on the church, especially the church as God sees it, than here in Ephesians. Apart from 1 Peter, Ephesians may very well be my favorite book in all the Bible. And I believe that our exploration this fall for the next three months is wonderfully timed for our context and our needs and our significance in the sight of God. Next week's passage is a fair amount shorter, and so we're going to take some time next week to do an overview of the background and the city and the recipients there in Ephesus. So I hope you'll make a point to be here on Labor Day Sunday. But for today, suffice it to say that Ephesians is a dream come true for a literary organization and practical outline. What do I mean by that? The first three chapters are doctrinal in nature. The, se- the last three chapters are ethical or moral in nature. The first three chapters are filled with indicative. This is true. This is reality. The last three with imperative. Therefore, you should live like this. The first three chapters focus on the essence of the church. The last three chapters focus on the expression of the church. Paul begins in this letter with one of the grandest, most inspirational, most magnificent, take your breath away passages in all the Bible. And my best comparison is uh, from three visits that we've made to the country of Switzerland and in the region called the Banner Oberland. And there you could look down from the top of three 13,000-foot mountains, the, the Eiger, the Mönch, and the Jungfrau, on these majestic slopes and valleys and lakes around the city of Interlaken. And what you see there causes one to wonder. You can't imagine the view that you can take in with so much beauty in one look. And indeed, when you consider what Paul says, from the eyes of God on the church, it's that and more. In this picture that we find in the first chapter of Ephesians, we're looking down with a divine perspective on the church and specifically what God has done for every person found in Christ. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, if you're not already there. I hope you bring a Bible when we gather together in these worship services. But if you don't have one, never fear. We've got one for you. Just raise your hand. You'll see a host or hostess in the aisle. Raise your hand and we'll get that to you on loan if you just forgot yours for keeps. If you don't own a Bible, we want you to have one. And this passage at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 1 is a doxology. It's an outpouring of praise and thanks to God for his marvelous work on our behalf. And we'll find here that there are no commands, that there are no imperatives, that there are no oughts and shoulds. Instead, Paul just breaks out in exclamation of the worthiness of God and invites us to follow 
in that praise of God. And if you're in Christ this morning, this is true about you. We're reminded in a passage like this that Christianity starts with you are and not you do. Our identity is the foundation, it's the security for all that God asks of our conduct. There are lots of people who think that Christianity, that knowing God is primarily about duty, it's primarily about obedience, but they've misunderstood the larger picture because to know God is primarily about glad-hearted worship of him. And only those who are in Christ can understand the larger picture of his magnificence. And so the question for you this morning is simple. Are you in Christ? Do you belong to Christ? Have you repented of your sin and the dead end road that that brings and turned in trust to Jesus Christ and the offer of abundant eternal life that he gives? If you have, this is your inheritance now. And if you have not or aren't sure, you are missing out on the greatest prize ever offered. This past week, an unnamed member of our pastoral staff heard about the opening of the new Sheets gas station down here on Polaris Parkway and Worthington Road. If you're looking for cheap gas, head there quickly. Uh, Sheets seems to be taking over everywhere. And we discovered in short order that at 11 o'clock on Tuesday morning, there was a drawing for a $2,500 fuel card. So dutifully, at the last minute, most of us went over there, signed up, and shared in the hopes of hitting the jackpot. I was quite surprised by the large crowd. Apparently, there are many people with not much to do on Tuesday morning at 11 a.m. <laughs> Disappointingly, none of us won, and so therefore, none of us will buy, be buying you a free tank of gas. But Someone did, whom some of us know. And he better be delighted because he hit the jackpot. He gets fuel blessings for the next year. But here's the thing. That's peanuts. That's crumbs compared to the jackpot that those who are in Christ have hit. And that jackpot never ends. The blessings won't stop. The benefits are forever. Shall we dive in? Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. I'd invite you to stand as we read the word of God and these blessings that Paul calls out on our behalf. I'm reading from the New International Version, beginning in verse 3 of Ephesians 1. Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, 
having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Amen? Amen. You may have a seat. This is the word of God. This is the church of Jesus Christ from divine perspective. And the picture is breathtaking. It inspires those who know Jesus Christ to realize all that they've been given in God's salvation, all that God has done and all that they have. And we begin to see or are reminded that the church is not simply a ragtag group of imperfect people that God is trying to fit together, but that the church of God is the manifold wisdom of God, showing off divine brilliance for all to see using you and me. It's a difference of perspective, and we need that. We don't need better methods, better personalities, better facilities, better conduct alone. We need a better grasp of who we are and what God has called us to, or as one of the mentors in my life in his final months or years said, the local church is perfected not by better programs, but by beholding the glory of the invisible. That is God's view of the church. As we begin here, let me highlight the presence and complementary roles of the Trinity. They're, They're everywhere to be seen here. God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The election and adoption of the Father. The rule and redemption of Christ. The sealing and security of the Spirit. Divine teamwork in grand proportion for you, for me. Point number one, the praise of God for the gift of his glory. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. This is the topic sentence for the entire passage. It's the the sentence that lays the groundwork for all to follow. In fact, this is the first part of one sentence in the original Greek from verse 3 to verse 14. 202 words in this sentence. That's right. This is a majestic run-on sentence from Paul because he can't quit highlighting the majesty, the masterpiece of God's design in the church. If you're an English teacher, you'd be horrified with a sentence this long. If you're a German teacher, you would expect a sentence this long. If you're God, you'd delight in a sentence this long because the description of his magnificence never ends. The opening paragraph here is an outburst of praise from Paul, and and he borrows an Old Testament Jewish style of eulogy, uh, baraka, where all kinds of praise comes tumbling out of his mouth or off his pen. Praise about God's election and adoption and will and grace and redemption and wisdom and mystery and the consummation of his plan. Look closely there. The incarnate Jesus, the risen Lord, is tied 
to God the Father, the creator of the universe. And that God in Christ has emptied the divine storehouse of blessing on every person found in Christ. He's not held back. Every spiritual blessing. The key, of course, as we'll say several times this morning, is are you in Christ? If you are, you can hardly take in the blessings that are yours. Delight overflows. If not, this is a jackpot of benefits that you are missing out on. And no one is kind of in Christ. You either are, and all of this is true about you, or you're not, and none of this is. You miss out, if you're not in Christ, on this divine pinata of blessing that the salvation of God bursts open. To be in Christ means to know God through Jesus Christ, and that's made possible by the Father himself. How? By his grace, through the repentance and faith that we respond with to his grace. In verse 2, Paul calls those who are in Christ saints, not a special category of particularly holy people in conduct, but mentioning every single person in Christ who is set apart, a saint in God's sight, for his glory. All Christian people are saints and believers and live both in Christ and in the secular world, John Stott writes, or in the heavenlies and on earth at the same time. What lurks behind this whole passage, the elephant in the room, so to speak, is the grace of God. Unmerited, undeserved favor. Paul is pulling back the curtain on God's plan from before time began and the grace unleashed on you and me. Grace is the heart of God. Grace is the means of our salvation. Grace is the fuel for our life with Jesus. We marvel here at the diamond of grace. You've been blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Praise God. Praise God. Point two, the plan of God through our belonging in Christ. And most of the rest of the verses here unleash this, this bounty of blessing for those in Christ. The, the categories can be arranged perhaps a little differently but what we find here are the ways in which God has blessed us. I've summarized five of them here, each one of them mind-boggling. And as we go through them, it reminds me of the commercial past and present where you hear of all the benefits if you get this product. And at the very end, they say, but wait, there's more. There's more today, indeed. It sounds too good to be true. But if you're in Christ, it's all true. Perhaps you'll find one or two of these particularly stunning, particularly reassuring, particularly satisfying to you, and, and that's to be expected. It's like a collection of Christian scientists who understand God's handiwork in all creation, but because of their discipline, they, they take particular satisfaction in one perspective. One, one of them looks at the microscopic slides or at the Petri dish and says, wow, the handiwork of God. Another is in the chemical lab and seeing how 
chemicals interact with one another and says, wow, the handiwork of God. Another is behind a telescope looking at the stars and the cosmos and says, wow, the handiwork of God. But they all realize that everything they see is the handiwork of God. And that's true for you and me today, spiritually. The first of those wow moments, God's choosing, verse 4. God's choosing to be holy and blameless in his sight. Almost all of our translations, including the one in front of you, probably use the word choosing there of God, and that's correct. But behind that English word is the word exelexato, from which we get our word elect, elect in English. Before the world was created, before you ever walked the planet or took a breath, God chose not on the basis of anyone's performance or desirability. It was divine choosing. Dave Plaster was in part my boyhood pastor and a seminary professor of mine and my predecessor here before God called him home 12 years ago, and he's now with Jesus Christ himself. Dave wrote, at one point, election is the sovereign act of God whereby he freely chose certain human beings to be saved. Its basis is not found in man, not in you or me, but in God's sovereign, inexplicable grace. It's not that God knew in advance what we were going to do and said, yeah, I'll take him or her. That's foreknowledge. It's even more than that. God chose in advance so that we would respond. Election is unconditional. It happened before time began. It is undeserved and it is required for salvation which begs the question, how do you know if you're elect? And the Bible's answer is, believe. God's choosing is found all over the Bible. Back in Paul's letter to the Romans, he has an extensive section where he unveils the plan of God specifically related to Jews and Gentiles and his salvation plan through the ages. And in one section there in Romans 9, he speaks of the twins, Jacob and Esau, from back in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Romans chapter 9, verse 10, not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Why, we ask. And Paul anticipated that same question in his readers. And his answer, quite clearly, is God's mercy. No one deserves God's mercy. No one's owed God's mercy. God chooses. Pastor in our day, Mark Dever, says God is in no way obligated to elect us because he created us. Election is a privilege we are given because of God's great overflowing love for us in Christ. Many people are perplexed by this. And the reasons for that often say more about us than they do about God. John Stott helpfully writes, Everybody finds the doctrine of election difficult. Didn't I choose God? Someone asks indignantly. To which we must answer, yes, indeed you did, and freely. But only because in eternity God had first chosen you. Didn't I decide for God? Someone else asks. To which we must reply, yes, indeed you did, and freely but only because in eternity God had first decided for you. The question is not why me and not them. The question is why anyone? And the answer, God's grace. 
The Bible doesn't attempt to explain that to all of our satisfactions. It's both true and remains a mystery. But the point of the doctrine of election is that it's God's revelation. It's not primarily for human speculation. It's biblical, and we do better to accept it than to try to explain it away, which usually twists us in knots. The fact is that God's grace has reached down to people, and if you're in Christ, that includes you, to save you from damnation and include you in salvation. Or as uh, Dr. Plaster said, that God sends people to hell is not the surprise, that God elects people is. For believers, the doctrine of election is a stimulus to humility. Wow. Me? Not a ground for boasting. The doctrine of election is an incentive to holiness, not an excuse for sin. Whatever you hear this morning, don't let the theological challenges of this teaching steal your awe of God's grace. But the purpose of God's choosing stands out in this very verse. Paul writes, it's so that you would be holy and blameless in God's sight. These words were used of the unblemished animals in the Old Testament sacrificial system before they were sacrificed, killed before God. The difference here is that you and I are meant to be the holy and blameless sacrifices, not to die, but to live, living sacrifices before God. And we have freedom from the guilt of our sin. In Jesus Christ. To be chosen, friends, is less of a conundrum and more of a wonder. But wait, there's more. Verse 5, God's predestination for adoption to sonship on the heels of God's choosing a people to belong to him and to become like his son, Paul writes of their predestination. This term is only used of believers in the New Testament. And here, Paul ties it to this privilege of being adopted as sons, sons and daughters in God's family. Now, adoption was a a common occurrence back in the ancient world in Paul's time, and it's not uncommon in ours. In fact, some of you have experienced that as a parent or even as a child. And And a child who is adopted gains a new status. They gain a new parent or set of parents. They gain the privileges and responsibilities of that honor. There is security, there is permanence for an adopted child. Spiritually, that's what happens with every person who is predestined by God for adoption as sons. They have a belonging, they have a blessing that never existed before. They were abused by that spiritual pretender, Satan, but in Jesus Christ, they have been removed from that destiny removed from that spiritual torment and welcomed into the safety and security of a perfect heavenly father. That's your father, if you know Christ. That's your father because of the power of the death and resurrection of Christ. That's no accident. That's no coincidence. It is the express pleasure and will of God that you are his. But wait, there's more. Verse 7 and 8, God's redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Now Paul switches his his analogy, his metaphor from that of adoption to that of the marketplace and quite frankly, the slave market. 
The picture here comes from the act of an individual, a slave being bought back by his or her rightful owner, of being taken out of captivity and brought back into safety. This is what God did among the Israelites in the Exodus. And this is what God does for those who are chosen and predestined to be his sons. How? Through the blood of Jesus on the cross. Jesus died so that you and I can be redeemed by God. Jesus died so that you and I would receive the forgiveness of sin. Jesus died so that the guilt that we have rightly would be removed by a substitute by the name of Jesus. That judgment's lifted, that our debt is canceled, that we are freed from this unchecked power of spiritual forces against our lives. See, when Jesus died, he died not only to release us from the spiritual prison of guilt, but to release us from the power of our abusive enemies over our spiritual lives. Why is this possible? Well, because of the grace of God shown in Jesus Christ for those he's chosen. Grace not just given, look at the word there, grace lavished. Grace abundantly distributed to those whom God chooses. Lavished means far more than what the government passes out in stimulus checks or even in the loans it cancels for some students. It's far more than grandma and grandpa showing up at the grandchildren's house and unleashing a torrent of presents upon them at Christmas. It's far more than the boss who unexpectedly at the end of the year distributes large bonus checks to everyone. No, this is a righteous God who bestows lavish spiritual blessings on those who were his enemies, who now believe, who now are in Christ. Is that you? Are you in Christ? If so, this is incredible. But wait, there's more. Verses 9 and 10, God's disclosure, a plan for all time. You and I live, as has been stated many times before, in a world in which history seems haphazard, where the world seems out of control, where the events of our lives, your life, my life, seem random, where goodness seems to be evaporating, where we ask, is there a method to this madness? Is anyone at the wheel? Can God make sense out of the mess of the world and my world? The answer is yes, he can, and yes, he does. In fact, God doesn't view it as a mess in the first place. Oh, he sees the the wickedness in our world and the immorality and the chaos. But while history might seem to you and I like this spaghetti-clustered mess where there's no solution to behold, this cluster of thread and yarn that makes no sense to God It's the precursor to a grand tapestry that one day he will reveal for all to see. The mess to us is the masterpiece to God. God in his wisdom is preparing to unveil a grand tapestry that will take away our breath. And God is telling us, Paul says, that in advance. This mystery to the world has been disclosed to us. You and I have advanced knowledge if we are in Christ 
as to what will happen in due time, in the fullness of time, when the time is ripe, everything will coalesce around Jesus Christ. There's a big word in the original Greek language here that refers to a coming together of history, a coming together of the cosmos around Jesus Christ, that Christ is the one in whom God chooses to sum up the cosmos, that he is the focal point through whom all this occurs, that one day God will be fully reconciled to his creation, and that's made possible by the cross of Christ, that Jesus Christ will rule over and unify and bring harmony to all things. That in Jesus, God will make all things right. Jesus, friends, is the culmination. It's like a great writer who in each chapter is developing the plot line. Where where characters encounter obstacles and opposition, where frustration mounts, where there are tensions and the reader, chapter after chapter, asks him or herself, what's going on here? Who will fix this? Where's the solution? And unexpectedly in that last chapter, the story reaches its majestic climax and the hero wins and everyone and everything is brought into submission under him. Or if I can change the analogy, it's like what some of us played with several decades ago and I I think is making a comeback, the little Rubik's Cube, where most of us could never figure out how to make the colors line up and we would spend minute after minute, hour after hour trying to make it work and someone else comes along and says, here, let me show you. Click, 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 and there it is. This, friends, is what God is doing with history. It may not make sense to us. We may not see a way out but God knows exactly what he's doing. Do you believe that? That's phenomenal news for people who are mired in trial, mired in tragedy right now. Is that you? Are you you facing hardship right now? Do you look at your life, your world, the world, and have trouble seeing solutions? Does our world depress you? Paul says here, take heart if you know Jesus, if you're in Christ, because Christ wins, and so do you if you know him. But wait, there's more. Verse 13, God's security through the Holy Spirit, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Again and again, we read this phrase, in Christ, in him, in whom. Indeed, it's the key to discerning precisely who receives this bounty of blessing from God. And if there's any doubt on who makes inclusion, it's found in verse 13. Are you included in Christ? The answer is yes. If you hear the word of truth, the message of salvation, and you believe The answer to are you included is have you believed? It's not a matter of whether you understand the twists and turns of history, larger history, or your personal story. It's not a matter of whether your life makes sense right now or is easy to endure. It's not a matter of you understanding the unseen world, which is as real or more so than what we see and taste and touch. It's not a matter of you figuring out how election and predestination works. Those things are for God to master, not for you or me. It's a matter of belief. 
Have you trusted in Christ as your Savior so that you can be found in Christ as your identity? Have you? If you have, the Bible teaches us here that you are marked with an unerasable spiritual ink that brands you as a child of God, that you belong to him. And that branding is shown in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit within you. That he is God's guarantee that you are owned by God. And if you are in Christ, you are guaranteed to have him. Your reception of these spiritual possessions depends upon God's possession of you. And if you belong to him, you have hit the jackpot. It cannot be taken away. I've never been a big fan of tattoos. Maybe it's my upbringing. Maybe it's uh, the sights I've seen of tattoos on saggy skin that were placed there decades before. Maybe it's my desire to permanently avoid symbols. If you have a tattoo, more power to you. There's no condemnation here. Just a lack of envy. (laughs) I hope you like yours indefinitely. But there is a tattoo that the Bible expressly celebrates. It's the permanent mark of the Holy Spirit in your life and on your body. That he dwells there, the divine presence to tell the world and to encourage and inspire God's friends and to warn his enemies that you belong to Christ. And if you are in him, you have been permanently, spiritually tattooed. And you don't ever want that removed. There's surely more here. These are the mountain peaks that God shares through Paul, that he wants us to behold God's election, God's predestination, God's redemption, God's plan, God's security. What a list of blessings. But why? What's the point, the purpose of God in Jesus Christ to lavish these benefits on those in Christ? Third and finally, the purpose of God in his salvation through Christ. Verse 11, if you read it there, is almost a recap of elements that Paul's already named. In fact, as I read that, it it reminds me vaguely of another place that Paul writes something similar about God's providence and God's sovereignty and God's personal work in the lives of people. You've heard the verse before, Romans 8, 28, and we know that in all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Why does God do all this for us, in us? He tells us in verse 12, which echoes the beginning of verse 6, which echoes the end of verse 14. Paul doesn't want us to miss the purpose. It's not only for our good and our blessing, but ultimately, supremely, God's work in people, people who are saved by his grace, is for the praise of his glory. That glory was first experienced, Paul writes, in the gospel as his Jewish ancestors were the first to hope in Christ. 
But it's been expanded through the witness of Paul and many others to the Gentiles, most of us, that we also might be included in Christ. And wherever that good news goes and wherever that good news is received, it is to the praise of his glory. The point of history, the point of your life, the point of my life is the praise of God's glory. He's worth it. He deserves it. And we give it to him, what he's owed, what he deserves, gladly. When we entrust our lives to him, we give him blessing and praise to the praise of his glory. Follower of Jesus Christ, this morning, is that your story? If God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him, are you? Do you relish the story of God's salvation, the fact that it's come to you? Is your your life a, a, a story of praise and thanks and blessing? Are you stunned today by the blessing and the glory of God? I hope so, for you and for me. Star writes, if we shared Paul's perspective here, we would also share his praise. For doctrine leads to doxology as well as to duty. Life becomes worship, and we bless God constantly for having blessed us so richly in Christ. You and I overflow in gratitude when we understand who God has made us in Christ to be. Because in Jesus Christ, you have hit the jackpot. In Christ Jesus, you are secure in the sovereign plan of God. In in Christ Jesus, you are in awe of God and his plan for the world and for your life. In Christ Jesus, you are chosen by God, the one who made you in the first place. In Christ Jesus, you are overwhelmed by God's grace for a sinner like me. In Christ Jesus, you have a loving father who will never let you go who will never abandon you. In Christ Jesus, you know that the very presence of God in the person of the Holy Spirit rests on and in you for eternity. In Christ Jesus, you have hit the jackpot. Those in Christ receive unfathomable, incalculable riches from God. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Amen. Just a moment after I pray, we're going to sing a grand anthem of praise to the glory of God. And I hope that your voices reflect the receptivity and wonder of your heart as we tell him to God be the glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're grateful for your grace and we're grateful that your divine plan has offered to us the jackpot of the ages. Thank you for Jesus Christ and for what he's done, for what he makes possible, for what is offered to us both now and for eternity. And thank you that you receive the glory. Help us to be the kind of people who receive with glad hearts and who share with with courageous mouths that you are a God worth living for because you have given us life. We praise you and we give you glory for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.